You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Well, well, well. Good morning. Good to be with you in, uh, in the city this morning rather than at Collingwood Park. Thank you, gentlemen. Very good. Good stuff. Yeah. Good to come and, uh, and, and see. Some of you I only get to see when I come and preach. And it's been now four years since I've been at Collingwood Park, so some of you I barely see at all. But um, there's a lot of good, a lot of new good faces in the, in the building, and that's good. Uh, faces I don't see often. Sign of a growing church, yep. Awesome. Okay, we're going to read a passage from the book of Genesis this morning. And, um, and if you... Want to, if you actually are someone who brings a Bible to church with pages and that sort of thing, you can open it up now and start finding it. It's going to be Genesis 4 while I just get my technology together. But before we read, I'm going to give you some context. In Genesis, we see the first humans, Adam and Eve, created by God and, and set up in this really incredible place called Eden. The, um, it, we, all, we all sort of think of Eden as just this garden plonked in in on earth somewhere, but a lot of um, newer uh, interpretations of the original Hebrew language actually sort of see Eden as a place where heaven and earth converged. And you see a lot of overlapping circles in church logos now, and that's representing that. And they, they, that's to, to actually demonstrate that, that heaven and earth converged in Eden. So the early stages of the Bible show us God who is extraordinarily powerful. He's the one who speaks universes into being. He's the God of the whole cosmos. He's radically present with his creation and yet also somehow separate. And in Eden, everything is in its right place. He's created this garden. He's created everything. He's put humans there and everything in its right, is in its right place. Creation performs the roles that he wanted, them, wanted it to and everything in it points to God. He is relational. He's a relational God. He's capable of of conversation and the humans he's created are to be his partners in that conversation and and his functionaries on the earth, priests who carry out his will on the earth. That was the original intention that God gave for humans to carry out his function on the earth, getting their identity from him and their vocation together. There's no delineation between heaven and earth. It kind of overlaps. God has created the place and given humans an existence with relatively few boundaries, only one in fact. But despite all this, the humans stage a coup. They do the one thing God told them not to do and something dark and horrible enters into the human line. From something as seemingly innocuous as eating a piece of fruit, it quickly escalates to jealousy and then murder. And that's where we're going to read. So sit back, get comfy. I'm going to read you a tale of woe. Genesis 4. We're going to read a lengthy passage, 16 verses. Verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve. That's a good way to start. And she became (laughs) pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And verse 16, I want you to get this. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. My sermon title this morning comes from that last verse, East of Eden. You may recognize that as a title of a novel by John Steinbeck that came out in the 50s and also a movie with James Dean and, and Burl Ives. But it first came to light, that title, that expression, came to light in the early stages of the human race. It was actually a place of banishment, a place of punishment. It was a place of separation. About five weeks ago, I was in, in Cape Town in South Africa. Beautiful place, beautiful city, really modern, really, most parts of it are, are really attractive. And uh, it's, it's a progressive city, really hipster city. So hipster, even the women have beards. <laughs> and I was, I was ensconced in this, in this suite overlooking the ocean. And we had a little balcony, and every time I went out on my balcony, I, I looked across the ocean at a place called Robben Island. That was a place of separation. That's where Nelson Mandela and two subsequent presidents of South Africa were incarcerated over there. It was a place of banishment. It was a place of, of separation. And in some ways, it gave them some sort of identity. But... The region described in Genesis is more than merely a place of separation and banishment. It's actually a state of being. To live east of Eden is to live separated from God, wandering restlessly, in the same way as Steinbeck's book and the subsequent movie are commentaries on the depravity of the human condition. East of Eden is a state of being more than it is a geographical location. Verse 16, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lived in the land of Nod, but the qualifying clause is outside of the Lord's presence. Cain was separated from God and followed the way of his own instincts and he ends up pursuing them to his own detriment. He became a restless wanderer. That restlessness comes from being detached from the true home that he had in God. 
And all the time nagging at him was this, this sense that he had a true home, but he wasn't living in it. If you know the quotes of St. Francis, St. Francis said, our hearts are restless until they find their true home in God. And so Cain becomes like a poster child for the fall. Like most of the human race, he tries to carve out meaning and legacy apart from God in his own power. So living east of Eden has meaning today, has meaning for us. We see people every day living separated from God, living away from his presence, living in rebellion and fear and mortality and trying to find security and stability in the spaces and, and places and social structures that they create themselves. Lost and wandering is the state of being of people in that East of Eden lifestyle. See, humans like Cain try to scratch out imitations of home in the dust where they find themselves because they can't actually get into their true home, or at least that's what they think. I think if I asked you, you could all think of someone who you knew who was in that category, someone who lived outside of the presence of God, restless, anxious, wandering, never truly settling down and living from the construct of their own minds, searching for comfort and happiness without ever actually finding it. We would reasonably categorise these people as people who are outside of church and we attach names to that like unsaved, unchurched, non-Christians. But would it surprise you to learn, it probably wouldn't, that there are people in church who live an East of Eden type of existence. By the law of averages, there are probably some of you in this room. Even though you're saved, you're a Christian, your eternity is shored up, you live a life that is where you don't experience the presence of God, where you feel restless, where you feel wandering, where you experience anxiety and depression and things that aren't a part of God's original plan. Would it surprise you to learn that? No, it shouldn't. We have East of Eden people living in church, more than we should. In the last couple of years, I've seen people who have been friends of mine for more than a decade who I thought were shored up, who I thought were on track, who I thought were locked into God. They said the right things, did the right things, raised their hands at the right time. But when the pressure came on, it was too much. There was no anchor. They fell away. And that's sad. Jesus referred to this as seed that falls on rocky ground. It goes all right for a while, it takes root and starts to spring up and looks good and it goes well for a season, but then when the pressure comes on, there's not enough depth and it withers. It can't make it through. This goes all the way back to the way we view what Jesus wanted, to be, wanted us to be. He didn't want us to be his converts or his believers or even his Christians. He wanted us to be his disciples. Resounding amen right there. That's what he wanted. He wanted us to be his disciples. Let's clarify what that means. Let's start with a familiar verse. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. We usually interpret this verse as a means of determining who's in and who's out. We major on the no one comes to the Father but by me bit. So we work out, okay, no one, that's it, they're in, they're out, that sort of thing. Secondly, we tend to major on the truth of Jesus rather than the way and the life of Jesus. But it's actually when the truth of Jesus and the way of Jesus come together, we get the life of Jesus. Now we know truth. We, are, we have the truth of Jesus in our face every weekend, every week, every day. We read our scriptures. But Jesus had a way. There was a way, the way of Jesus. He modeled a life that we were to emulate that would always be the benchmark for those who would be his disciples. There were things that Jesus did that we are meant to copy. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that following Jesus is knowledge-based. Often when I've asked somebody to take, a, take on a leadership role, maybe take on a connect group, or so, they say, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. It's not about how much you know, it's are you following the way? The practices that Jesus followed in his earthly life constitute the way of Jesus. And we need to know his truth, but we need to practice his way. That's what a disciple does. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just finishes with this little haunting scripture. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And at the end of Luke chapter 8, he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Following Jesus is a practice-based economy. It's doing things, doing particular things, participating in particular practices. What is a disciple? The word for disciple in the original language is the word mathetes. Mathetes can be translated and is translated in a number of ways. It can be student, it can be practitioner, it can be follower, but the most accurate translation of the word mathetes is apprentice. So when you think of yourself as a disciple of Jesus, think apprentice. When you hear the word disciple, think apprentice. This wasn't a new thing. This was something that started in the Greek schools of philosophy. For example, Plato was a mathetes of Socrates. Now, Jesus always invited people to be his disciples. There was a hierarchy of invitations. He said, those who would, come up, who would be my disciples, come after me, follow me. And he also said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me, which is a general invitation. But then there were more specific invitations. There were invitations that said, sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead and follow me. You get the impression from these invitations that Jesus is inviting us to something serious, something that is a lifetime of, of doing, a lifetime of practicing. It's not just a quick, okay, I'll get on the road, I'll read the Bible through and I'll know it all and then I'll be right for the next 50 years. It doesn't work like that. It's a 
Jesus invites us to be a disciple, and that is a lifetime of practicing his way. They are serious invitations, not something light, an invitation to a lifestyle of radical transformation, the lifestyle of a disciple. Now, when you heard the word disciple, probably something sprang into your mind. By discipleship, some people think that, that it's leadership development, like what Jesus did with his 12. The thinking is that Jesus had these, these 12 guys and he spent all of his time teaching them, and that's the Jesus method for changing the world, and every leader should have 12 guys that he pours into. No, that's, that's not discipleship. Jesus had more disciples than the 12. The 12 were like a subset of his disciples. They were the ones that he had marked out to be apostles and to begin the process of starting his church. Jesus actually had hundreds, if not thousands, of followers, of disciples who followed him all over Galilee. Another interpretation of discipleship is one-on-one mentorship, where the idea is you sit with an older, wiser, sage-like person and they teach you how to be a Christian, you know. Grasshopper, what most important thing in all of the world? You know, and and you, you sit there at the feet of this sage and, and you learn how to be a Christian. The only thing is, Jesus was rarely, if ever, one-on-one with anybody. Now, one-on-one is important for leadership development and mentorship. I'm all for it. But it shouldn't be confused with discipleship. To be a disciple or to apprentice unto Jesus is to order your life around three things. That is, one, to be with Jesus, two, to be like Jesus, and three, to do the things that Jesus did. Now, I'm going to put a table up on the screen in a minute, and it will show you how those practices actually are are contrary to the things that happened under the fall. You see, in creation, humans were walking with God, they were naked and unashamed, and they had a vocation to tend the garden and keep it. After they fell, that all changed. They were separated from God. Their operating system was self-centered or egoic, and they spread dying and death. Now, then we see the three things that we order our lives around to be a disciple, to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And that actually brings restoration to the original purpose, where we see being with Jesus brings union. It's like walking with God, become like Jesus, transformation to Christ-likeness, and that is back to being naked and unashamed in its, if you extend it down the track, and also to do what Jesus did, to reign in love, which was the original purpose of God's functionaries, his humans that he created. So that's the basis of the three things that make up a disciple, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. That is a picture of the narrative arc of the human condition. So let's take them one by one, to be with Jesus. Just give me a little sniffle or something to let me know you're all awake, and that's good. Very quiet this morning, and I understand that. Number one, to be with Jesus. This is the first, and I would suggest the most important of the goals, just to slow down from the hurry and the noise and the traffic and the busyness of life in this modern world and to set our mind on God and his compassionate goodness towards us. 
to direct and redirect our focus to him because it gets distracted, doesn't it? You sit down, you try and be with God, two minutes, you're on the phone, or, or this, or that, and, and it just all comes undone. But it's a matter of directing and redirecting our focus on him. And when we do this, we can utilise spiritual practices like reading the scripture, listening prayer. It's good to practice, if you can, a, a Sabbath rest, a day where you don't actually work, if you can fit that into your calendar and you actually spend the day reading and focusing on, on God, actually coming back and, and resetting everything, recalibrating your life around him. Communion, that's another, another way of focusing our life on, on God. You know, we do that uh, once a month in all of our services. We, we actually bring a focus. We sit down, we take the bread and the cup, and we focus on him. To just anchor our minds and sometimes even our bodies in an awareness and a connection to him, to be partners with him in conversation, to get back to that, that union that happened in Eden. Just, I, I recommend 20 minutes each morning just focusing on, on him. If you want to know what to think about, focus on looking at God, looking at you in love. Focus on him delighting in you. Focus him, on him thinking about you, that you're on his mind, that you're in his thoughts, that he has plans for you, that he's thinking about your day, he's thinking about the things that are ahead. But for the, that 20 minutes just focus on him looking at you in love. Now, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in isn't helpful. When it's traffic and noise and multi-billion dollar corporations all competing for our attention, all trying to do everything they can to attract us and addict us and steal our attention. But the call of Jesus is to live in constant communion. The abiding life, he called it. That was his terminology, that was his language, as opposed to a life of distraction and noise. Now, this may sound utopian or unachievable, but A.W. Tozer, that great Christian author, said this, and I quote, as we, see, as, we sat, as we set the heart's attention on Jesus, a habit of soul is forming, which will become, after a while, a spiritual reflex, requiring no more conscious effort on our part. See, at first, it will be clumsy. At first, as we come and sit in God's presence, it feels awkward. Oh, what, do I, what do I do? It's like beginning on a first date, you know. But that's always the way in the initial stages of learning something new. If you're a sporting person, if, you, if you're a, a hockey player or something and your coach shows you a different way to hold the stick, it always feels awkward at first, but then it becomes part of you. And so what, what we're actually aiming at is to have a consciousness of Jesus that is actually a spiritual reflex, that it's there all the time. For a while, it'll seem difficult, but then it'll become delightful. You need to know that as we do things over and over, at the, the neuroplasticity of our brain adapts to make that something that, we've, that we are comfortable with, that we can do. Our neurological system actually actively participates in its own construction. And it's a habit-based thing that does that, habit-based practice that changes the neuroplasticity of our brain. I'm an amateur neuroscientist. <laughs> Consultations will be cheap. 
But as you progress in this discipline, you begin to stay in the reality of God. You begin to develop a consciousness that is with you unconsciously, if I can put it that way. Even, through, even though the day has pressure and, and times that would normally distract you, you can build up an unconscious consciousness. After a while, you begin to understand how much of this is actually tied to surrendering your own will, surrendering things that, that you want to do to actually put in the time to make this happen. And after a while, we begin to actually understand that we're living for God's pleasure. And as we meditate on him and, and think about him loving us, we actually feel his pleasure, living with a constant sense of his personal temple presence is the goal here. So that's number one, to be with Jesus. Goal number two is to become like Jesus. If you go back 30 or 40 years, there was a different cultural emphasis in our society. Back 30 or 40 years, people valued character. Now it's more personality. People value personality. But I mean, if you go to a funeral, what do they talk about? They talk about the deceased's character, don't they? They don't say, well, gee, she really had great teeth. <laughs> Did you see his abs? You should have seen him on the beach. <laughs> gee, you could tell a joke. No, they focus on someone's character because character is what remains Character is, is, is not temporary, it's permanent. To become like Jesus, most of us, probably all of us, need to undergo a process of transformation. Yeah? You say amen to that one? Yeah, good, okay. By, by that, I don't mean that we tweak our lives with self-help. Most of us need a radical overhaul from top to bottom from the inside out, just to become even a little bit like Jesus. But that is the aim. Let me read you a, a verse that, that, that helps, helps us to understand this. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, it says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now we get from this that it is a process it's not that we come to Jesus and he snaps his fingers and all of a sudden we're like him. We go, ah, oh, good. It's not like that. The academic label for this process is called spiritual formation. Jesus said, everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. If you're fully trained, that means you can be partly trained or half trained or three quarters trained. So we're not there yet. And in Jesus' day, the practice of following a particular rabbi was widespread. They had rock star rabbis that everybody wanted to be their disciple. You've heard that, that expression, Jesus said, come with me and I will make you fishes of men. That was, a, that was not just a, a cheesy Jesus-y pun. That was actually, that was actually a, a, an expression that people understood because the rock star rabbis of the day were called fishes of men. That's what they were called. To... 
the, the idea was the disciple would follow a rabbi, he would go through a grueling um, initiation test to make sure he was up to it, but then the disciple would follow the rabbi and he would, his goal was to be like the rabbi. He would dress like him. He would have the same kind of beard as him. He would use the same inflections in his voice as him. He would use the same mannerisms as him. If the, if the rabbi suffered an injury and walked with a limp, the disciples walked with a limp too. There's all these people walking along in a line and a limp. And that's, that's how serious it was, to be like one's rabbi. So the practice of being like Jesus is for us to become almost a carbon copy of, of that, a carbon copy of Jesus as our rabbi. Now, in this highly individualistic world where we're told that we're a snowflake, we're unique, there's no one like us, to actually copy someone goes against the grain. But that is the precept that we have, to be like Jesus. Generally, because of the busyness of life, the process of becoming like Jesus is sort of truncated into come to church, read the Bible, pray and tithe. But it's more than that. We've got to actually practice the things that, that Jesus did. I'm all for those four practices. They're all a part of my life. In my experience, people can get 10, 20 or 30 years down the track just doing that and they don't feel transformed at all. They just feel older. So to understand that spiritual formation isn't just a Christian thing, it's a human thing. We will be transformed by something, we will be a disciple of something unconsciously, unintentionally, without actually wanting to be, we will be discipled by something. It might be by our iPhone, it might be by Sky News, it might be by the project, it might be by something else. So we're all being shaped, we're being formed every day, every minute of every day. The stories that come to us through our phones, our workplace, a book we read, the internet, social media, our friends. The assault of secular media is not to be taken lightly. But we are formed by our habits. The things we do, do something to us. We become something under the cum cumulative effect of our regular habits over a lifetime. We're formed by our relationships and formed by our environment, so our habits have got to be stronger than those things. The point is, however we follow Jesus, it has to overcome all of the attacks that we suffer. Our intentional spiritual formation must be stronger than that unintentional spiritual formation happening around us. And that's number two, to be like Jesus. Number three is to do what Jesus did. Maybe a more helpful way of looking at that would be to do what Jesus did if he were me or if he were you. That would be more, surprise, more, more precise. Remember the WWJD movement of the 90s, the what would Jesus... It was all centred around some rather unique pieces of jewellery that had the letters what WWJD. The thought being that we would be prompted through the day when we looked at our jewellery to say, oh yes, what would Jesus do in this situation? And we would do what he did. It was a great sentiment and it's a great question, but it's a little bit misleading. The only problem was that Jesus was a first century male Jewish itinerant rabbi, which we are not. 
So, so if you're looking for a place to live, what would Jesus do? Probably camp a lot and couch surf at his rich friend's places. <laughs> so it's not really helpful. What would Jesus do if he were me? The end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what he did and to become people who love in word and deed. That is the, the, the litmus test. That's the measure. That we actually love people the way Jesus loved people to continue what Jesus started with his kingdom. Now, things that Jesus did, things that he did in his life, he preached the gospel, he taught the Bible, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he prayed, he prophesied, he was actively involved in social justice, he was involved in eating and drinking with people far from God, he fought religious hypocrisy, and he spoke truth to power. Now, there are a lot of things that Jesus did, but let's just start with trying to love like Jesus loved. The bottom line in all of that is if we were running around doing what Jesus did in our city, our city would soon be transformed, at least a little bit. Wouldn't you agree? There are, there are two verses that, that spring to mind, and let's just focus on this as things that Jesus did. And, and try and put this one into practice in the next little while. Two verses, this is not rocket science. It's not the killer app from Silicon Valley. It's, it's just simple. Two verses in Luke that, that actually give us a, an insight into the way that Jesus did things. The Son of Man came to seek those that were lost, to seek and to save the lost. And the other thing, the other verse was, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now the two go together really well. You think about it. Jesus is walking through a town, Jericho, and he looks up in a tree. He says, you, up in the tree, Zach. Cool 90s name for a first century guy. Hey, why don't we have dinner? But not at my place because I'm homeless, so we'll have to come to yours. And I hear, rumour has it, that you oppress the poor. So you've probably got a really cool mansion in the suburbs. And... Uh, you're probably going to have to sell it, but let's first go over and eat our way through your pantry. That's, that's the, and, and, and he says, also, bring your oppressing poor, poor oppressing mates and we'll have a chat. And so Jesus is actually reaches out to this guy in love. He doesn't say, you mongrel, get down here. You're doing all this wrong. He actually reaches out to him in love. See, when Jesus was away from the synagogue, he treated people who weren't under the, the, the canopy of the synagogue differently. He actually, he actually responded to them differently. He ate and drank with them. He mingled with them. He just let them be with him. And it often, most always, brought about change. Don't underestimate the power of doing what Jesus did in Ipswich. Don't underestimate what it can do. But all of this is um, easier said than done. It's not supposed to happen in a weekend. It's supposed to happen over a lifetime. But if we keep going back to these, these three anchor points, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did, if we focus on those things as our discipleship, as our commitment to him, as how we follow him, as how we walk with him, then Holy Ghost synergy takes over. 
and he begins to form Jesus in us. The musos could join me. I'm just going to nearly be finished. There's a story about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and, and theologian. He was disillusioned with how the Nazi party in, in Germany had more or less dismantled the church and made it become a sort of a, a, a almost an extension of themselves. And he, he was offered a, a lucrative uh, professorship, if that's a word, in America, and he turned it down, knowing that if he stayed in Germany, he would probably lose his life, and eventually that's what happened. He was executed by the Gestapo. But he, he began to build up this, almost like a, like a, a Bible college. It was called Finkenwald. It was uh, where, he, where he actually trained and, and helped people, discipled young men who would be the ministers of uh, what they called in Germany was the confessing church, which was actually the real church. The, the, the public church in Germany was, as I said, an extension of the Nazi party. And he, he, was, he was training these guys, teaching them the Bible, teaching them how to be in ministry, and, and that would happen every day, and at night they would do things that were cultural, like read poetry and, and listen to music and, and that sort of thing. And um, one of his friends came to visit him at Finkenwald, and he said, to, he said to Bornhofer, what are you doing here? You're wasting your time you know, reading poetry in the woods with these hippies. What are you doing? You should be, you should be, do, you should be a professor in a college somewhere. And he said actually grabbed his friend, sat him in a rowboat, rowed him across the lake, and they went up on a mountain. And on one side, they could see Finkenwald, where, he was, where Bornhofer was coaching the next generation of ministry. And on the other side, there was a Hitler youth camp, where they were marching, practicing shooting, and that sort of thing. And he said to his friend, this, meaning Finkenwald, must be stronger than this, the Hitler youth. See, what we have... What we do, our discipleship, our pursuit of God, our communion with him, our connection with him must be stronger than the things that this corrosive culture throws at us. It's got to be strong. We've got to be anchored. You agree? Yeah. Then let's pray. Just with every head bowed and, and every eye closed, I just want to, want to ask you. We're talking about people this morning who live east of Eden, outside of God's presence, restless and wandering, knowing that there is a place for them but unable to access it. The good news is that if that is you, then you're able to access God's presence and his love for you in a mere moment, in a mere moment. I wonder if this morning you are someone who is who's thinking about crossing the line of faith, maybe becoming a Christian for the first time. Maybe someone who has felt separated from God, someone who is away from him currently, wanting to be back but not really knowing how. If you're in the first category I mentioned, that you've never ever been a Christian and you, would, and you want to be, you, you feel that, that God is calling you to something, then let's, let me pray for you. If that's you this morning, why don't you raise a hand? If you're in the second category, if you feel separated from God, if you, feel, you don't feel his presence, you don't, you don't feel connected to him, 
then, then I want to pray for you too. If that's you this morning, just let me see your hand and I'll, we'll pray together. Okay. Why don't we stand as Letitia leads us in a song. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 